This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. The workplace has always presented particular challenges to women, often forcing them to choose between doing what's best for their careers and doing what's best for their families. For years, the message has been that if women just work hard enough, they can have it all. However, a new book argues that if women are actually to achieve equality in the office, we must move away from this outdated mindset and stop ignoring the real life challenges that any woman seeking both a family and a career faces. The book is titled Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. And it's written by Reshma Sujani, the best-selling author and the founder of Girls Who Code. And we're delighted that she joins us now to lay out her vision to transform our offices and our culture to better support all women, especially working mothers. So Reshma, welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. I'm going to start off by telling you it's a fascinating book. It, it, it's compelling. Um, I mentioned this beforehand. As soon as we're finished this, I am sending it to our daughter, who is a, an accomplished cancer surgeon and the mother of two boys, as you are. Her boys are six and three. Uh, and there is so much in this I want her to see and to learn about. But I want to start with this. I am always fascinated, and I believe our, our viewers are too, about who an author is and why they choose to write a particular book. And in your prologue, you, you talk about your own trajectory. And as you're reading it, your first thought is that this is absolutely the trajectory for success that people would want to emulate. And as you're describing it, you then say, all of a sudden you said, stop. Tell us a little bit of, about that trajectory and why you chose to stop at that. Yeah, well, I'm the daughter of refugees. You know, my parents came to this country in 1973. They were two of a thousand engineers who got status to come here. My dad used to always say to me, Rashma, you have three choices. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. I picked law. Uh, you know, I went to law school, uh, to Yale Law School after I applied three times and I finally got in. And, you know, when I saw, when I went to, when I went to these big law firms, you know, I didn't see a lot of women. Or when I did see women, I didn't see women who were mothers. But I, you know, like I talk about later, you know, leaned in really hard, did everything that I was supposed to do in, th in thinking that if you worked hard enough, then you can get to success. You know, I found which is, which is the message, as you mentioned, the message you get, it was dream big, work hard, lean in, right? Yeah. And that sounds like if you do all those things, you know, the lights will and the whistles will go off and you'll be successful. So, but what did you find? I found COVID. You know, I, in, in, in 2020, I started 2020, Girls Who Code, so 
started a large organization, the largest women and girls organization in the world, Girls Who Code. Uh, I started 2020. Um, girls Who Code had a Super Bowl ad. We were going to teach more girls than we had mm-hmm. ever taught that year. I had, had a newborn baby uh, who was born three weeks before COVID started. And then COVID hit. And I found myself having to go back to work when my son was a few weeks old, having to homeschool my kindergartner and having to save my nonprofit from a pandemic. Uh, I got COVID-19, but it barely registered. My liver failed. Uh, When I looked at my leadership team, they were mostly all mothers of young children. And for a lot of us, we were saying, just hold on a bit, just hold on a bit, wait till September. Because when the schools open, everything will be okay. We'll get a reprieve. And then the schools never opened. And they announced something called hybrid learning, where you as a working mom got to log on your kid at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, all the while you maintain your full-time job. And that's when we saw millions, over 2 million women leave the workforce, the largest exodus in the history of our nation. You know, when we started the pandemic, we were 51% of the labor force. And seeing that, experiencing that as a working mom is what has led me to write this book, Pay Up. Let me talk about some of the specifics here. You you get into, uh, into the introduction. And in that, you introduce us to what you call the big lie. What do you mean by that? What's the big lie? Well, the big lie, and this is something I sold for the past decade. I tell my young girls who code students that, you know, if you leaned in hard enough, you could girl boss your way to the top, that the corner office was just an express train and you just had to jump right on it. And during the pandemic, I learned taking care of these two little babies, trying to run my organization. I was exhausted and I had resources. And so it wasn't as simple as taking another leadership course and color coding your calendar and finding a mentor. You know, workplaces have never been designed for working women. And so everything that we- Let me ask you, what do you mean by that? When you say that workplaces have never been designed for working women, in what fashion? Well, you know, we've been told that we can have it all, but having it all is really a euphemism for, for doing it all. And workplaces have been telling us to fix ourselves and not fix the system. You know, what we learned in, in COVID was that so many of us were already doing two and a half jobs. We were doing the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry and the homeschooling, and that that was a job. And we were trying to do that job while we were maintaining this job. And it's always been untenable. But workplaces, since its inception, and we talk about this in the history of my book, and maybe we'll go into it, but like, you know, from World War II, we, we, we were only there because the men were fighting the war. And then we were pushed out and we were never invited. And so the, we knew the rules of participation that to participate, we had to hide our motherhood. And we had to hide the fact that we had this other obligation. You, you talk about, and again, I, I find some of your own anecdotes compelling, and you talk about when you were first starting to work and, and you're working so many hours and so hard, and you, you hadn't had, you got married, but you hadn't had your own children yet, and yet you, you, were, you were seeing, if this is the right phrase, you were seeing an absence of evidence of family. 
in your office and the offices of other women. Talk about that. You know, the workplaces, you know, again, were places where you, you saw women breastfeeding in closets that you never actually had pictures of your children. I never saw pictures of people's children on their desks. You know, you invariably would see on someone's calendar, you know, uh, lunch, where lunch was really, again, a euphemism for that you had to take your kid to the doctor, but you couldn't say that. Because if you did, when you were a working woman, suddenly you were not committed to your job or your career. We knew that there was a penalty that you paid for being a mother in the workforce. So we hid it. And I think a lot of that even inspired so much. So many young people would say, would say to me, you know, have imposter syndrome. Even though they were 4.0 from Yale University, completely qualified, completely prepared, but they were having children and they were like, why can't I do this? Because we've almost told women that you should be able to do it. And so it's, we always thought the problem was us yeah. and not the structure. So I, I, I think when you, when you look at, at some of these, these hurdles, the first thing that strikes you is this notion that certainly for for your generation um, and the, the younger folks coming up, that the message was you can do this. As I said in the introduction, the message was work hard. Again, we talked about this before, dream big, lean in, all of those things. So that's the message we were sending. But the reality didn't sync up with the, the message. Yeah. When did when did you first become aware of that reality that that there was not a syncing up of, of of that? I think when you start when I started to see those millions of women leave the workforce like that, yeah. that scared me. That we could have fought our way to fifty one percent, and in nine months we can be back to where we were in nineteen eighty nine, and that I realized that as women we've always been kind of hanging on by a thread. You know, and we've always been, it's always been, as I talk about my book, this proverbial seesaw, mm. you know, and again, we're in this age of intensive parenting. So as a parent, as a mother, make sure your kid knows Mandarin, you know what I mean? Hindi and Spanish <laughs> and plays five sports. And you're this ideal worker where with technology, you're always on, you're always present. And so we've always been barely hanging on. And with the pandemic and schools being shut down, daycare centers being closed, the fact that you couldn't bring in your elderly parents to watch your children. And for a lot of women of color, hourly workers having their jobs automated because of the pandemic, there was no safety net because we were our country's social safety net. You had always been, the women had always been their always, own safety. We had always been. And so that for me was the big reveal that, everything that I've been taught, everything that I've been teaching was wrong. That it wasn't as easy as just leaning in harder. It wasn't as easy as taking another class, believing in yourself, being brave enough to raise your hand, I would say. That there were real structural problems, you know, not having affordable childcare, right? Having, you know, school days be from nine to three, but work hours be from nine to five. You know, nine to five, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, (laughs) right, Living, you know, again, living in a country where, you know, childcare is more expensive than your mortgage Mm -hmm. that we had been setting up working women and families up to fail. I'm going to talk about about some of your suggestions in the book, but I want to start off with um, what, what might seem like something of a paradox, which is you're talking about the impact of the pandemic. 
and what it revealed to us. But you also talk about the fact that it, it could be an opportunity. How, how could that be? How does that make sense that something, a pandemic that was so injurious and impactful can also present an opportunity? Well, because this situation wasn't created by the pandemic. It's been brewing for decades. Uh, it just revealed itself to us. And I think the other bonus that we have or the opportunity that we have as women right now is leverage. You know, the recent jobs report just came out and we have more jobs open in the United States than ever before. You know, people are desperate for for workers, for talent. It's a seller's market. And so if there's ever been a moment for women to say, I am not going back to a broken system, here's what I need. It is now. And so we have this window, but you know, it's funny, Jack, there is a lot of pressure, as you see, uh, to go back to the old normal, as like, you know, as as we call it. Right. Come back to the office five days a week. No more flexibility. No more remote working. None of those things. Just come back. Just come back. Just come back. And so we have to resist it. And I think we have this window of opportunity between now and the end of the year to really start changing, you know, changing what workplaces can look like and transforming them. You talk about you have some essentials of change or principles of change. Uh, give us a sense of what you think they are and why they would be effective. Yeah. So, you know, the four things I talk about is, you know, one is about, you know, empowering yourself. I didn't want to write a book where I, again, was saying to women, go fix yourself. But I did want to set some things. That Which I'm suggests gonna... that there's something wrong intrinsically with you, with the women, not with the system that surrounds you. And yet you would hear that often in the past by people saying, you know, get, get a grip on yourself, fix yourself, make sure you work with Go others. meditate, go do some yoga, you'll be fine. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things I put in that section is set some tangible boundaries for yourself. So, you know, example in my house, my husband does the nights and I do the mornings. And at six o'clock, if I'm sitting around watching Netflix, Nahal will say, hey, can you go warm the bottle? Can you change the diaper? So, you know, at 6 p.m., I leave and I go plan a girl's night or I have a dinner by myself, but I'm just gone. And that way, honestly, he really does the nights and I get to have time for myself. So, you know, setting boundaries is really important. You know, the second thing I talk about is really transforming the workplace. There's nine strategies that I put out there about what we need to be changing. And one of the things is, you know, subs I really believe that this is the moment for us to get subsidized childcare. So many companies give you, you know, free gym memberships and egg freezing. But when you become a mom, there's the support is gone. And you talk and about how, how we compare, I don't want to interrupt you, I want you to continue, but you do mention how we compare to other developed countries. Yeah, I we mean don't compare well. Right? We do not compare well. You know, childcare is more expensive, you know, unavailable here than in any other nation. You know, I was on a, I was doing a panel with some ministers of, of both in France and Canada, and the woman in Canada was saying to me, wow, post-pandemic, we have a boom. More women than ever before are participating in the workforce. And it broke my heart. And it's because Canada, affordable, uh, childcare is, is cheap. It's affordable. Everyone can have access to it. And so these things actually make a huge difference. They're economic issues. We've always treated childcare as your personal problem that you have to solve. It is an economic issue in the same way that healthcare was. Healthcare costs for families were so exuberant that employers started 
paying a piece of it. It's the same thing for childcare. It's time. Um, you know, the third thing I talk about is the the need to kind of revise the narrative. You know, to value motherhood, we have to stop hiding it. You know, it's funny, so many women I know, you know, when they became pregnant, they would wait to the last possible second to tell their employer. There's just an article out recently about how Zoom's so great because you could wait till the very last second. <laughs> you know no I mean? one can tell and you're pregnant. Knows, which means nobody can discriminate against you. Mm-hmm. And we can't go back to that. And we got, we have to, so we have to stop hiding our motherhood and, and our employers have to stop asking us to hide our motherhood. Um, and, and finally, we got to advocate. You know, we can't wait for Congress to, to grow a heart. And, you know, the fact that we've bailed out airlines, but we haven't bailed out moms, shameful. And, and so we have got to start mobilizing and organizing and fighting for paid leave and affordable childcare and the, and the child tax credit and recognize that there are real governmental structures that can be put into place, policies that can be put into place, benefits that can be put into place that we deserve and that other women have across the world. You use a term that, that I, I found both curious and powerful, and that was you talked about the need to, to learn how to parent loudly. Mm. What does that mean? It means not hiding your motherhood. You know, it, it means like I, when I, for my first son, Sean, I brought him everywhere. When I gave the commencement speech at the you know, Harvard School of Graduation, there he was. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was speaking to the national governors to ask them to have more coding in classes, there he was. And it was messy. I normally had some spit up or throw up or some form of food on me. He was crying and screaming. They were definitely like, it was messy, but it was honest and it was real. And so we have got to stop, you know, and, and we're not crazy for hiding our parent, you know, for hiding our motherhood because there's something real called the motherhood penalty, which is when you become a mother, you're, you're paid less. You know, we see that we're treated differently for it, but instead of kind of going along with society and hiding it, we need to parent out. That's why I'm wearing my mama necklace. You know, it's why you've seen, you know, on LinkedIn that you can put mom as a title, mm-hmm. you know, on your resume. Yeah. It's the proudest thing. It's the proudest title I have. It's interesting you say that. I, I had mentioned to you, our, our daughter is a cancer surgeon with two boys. And, and she told the story that during the pandemic, as a cancer surgeon, she had to be in the hospital because you couldn't put them off. But she was doing a lot of her telemedicine. And at various times, one of her boys, usually the three-year-old, or the at that time two to three-year-old, would pop up on the screen. And he'd say the things like that that strikes fear in the heart of a mother, you'll know. He'd walk in with a magic marker and say, Mama, I was coloring. <laughs> You're thinking, oh, where was this now? And she said it was interesting. After a while, she she didn't she didn't fight it. And she yeah. had patience. Now, interestingly, she's a, um, a gynecologic oncologist. So her patients are women, which probably suggests something right there. But interestingly, her patients were often say, it's fine. Let him stay right there. I'm a, or other, they'd say, you better go check what he was coloring on, right? Um, and, and so I, I think that, is that an illustration of what you're talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Because I think what was happening in, sometimes in the beginning of the pandemic where we were turning off our videos, when our kids were coming in and or we were apologizing. Mm-hmm. And I think by the end, we're just like, ah, it's just, it's, it's just happening all here. 
I, I do worry, you know, as one of the other strategies I talk about is predictability and flexibility that, you know, we have to though think about when we design remote working, that it doesn't become, you know, a, a two-tiered system. That suddenly- and I was going to ask you about that. It, with ah. people either coming back or creating some sort of a hybrid, what's the danger of that for women? The danger is that it's just women who take advantage of that and that our unpaid labor, because, you know, we're taking advantage of it because we want to spend more time. I mean, there's something, I have a two-year-old, and there's something about just like seeing Sai-Sai around the house or knowing in between meetings, I can just give him a cuddle or a hug, you know, or feed him or see what he's up to, check on him. It feels like so much different than with my first, which I, which I spent 20 minutes a day with. So I think women want that. I also think that because women are doing the bulk of the caretaking and the cognitive labor, doing some, you know, loads of laundry, getting the groceries, you know what I mean? Making sure that doctor's appointments are taken care of because we're doing that work anyway. Now, the opportunity is, is that if everybody is working remotely at some periods of the day, then, you know, our partners get to take in on some of that cognitive labor, domestic labor too, and you're shifting the ratio of work. So I think design and how we design this to not exacerbate inequality, to not exacerbate the gender inequality at home is critical. You, you do, uh, among the many things that you do here, um, is the, the, the Marshall Plan for Moms. And you write about it in your book. Marshall Plan, people probably remember following World War II in order to, to somehow pick up devastated Europe. Here's what everybody was going to do to, to make sure that happens. What do you mean and what's your organization do when you're talking about a Marshall Plan for moms? Well, the Marshall Plan for moms, you know, started out of COVID, out of the where's the plan? All these women have left. What should we do? You know, it started with a full page ad that I took out uh, in the New York Times with Amy Schumer, Gabrielle Union, Mindy Grossman, Aijin Poo, Jen Hyman, you know, women leaders who said to President Biden, like during your first hundred days, do something about this, that moms are not America's social safety net, that we do not work for free. We followed that up with an ad from 50 men led by Steph Curry with men saying, I mean, you, you told me that, you know, your mom was a single mom. A lot of men experienced this and also feel like we have to change the, you know, change the situation for working mothers so that they can actually not just survive, but thrive. And so the Marshall Member Moms is a nonprofit organization that is pushing for both public and private policies to help, you know, working women, you know, out of the economic recovery and recover. Um, and so for a long time, you know, when I was a little more hopeful, we thought that that change was going to come from government. And now, you know, two years, we're almost at the two-year anniversary of the pandemic and, you know, the bill formerly known as Build Back Better, I just, like I said, I'm waiting for Congress to grow a heart. But we still have, you know, almost 1.1 million women missing from the workforce, millions of others who have downshifted. 51% of women of, of working moms say that they're anxious or depressed. The great resignation, the great quit is being driven by women who are quitting because of their childcare issues and the fact that they're not finding the support that they need from their managers or their spouses. So women are in crisis and we can't wait for the government to act. And so our focus is really on the private sector. And you know, with this book, Pay Up, really igniting, organizing women in workplaces 
to make demands, starting with subsidizing childcare. Jack, right now, my goal is to get, right now, 10% of companies subsidize childcare. I'm going to get to 100%. It's I'm astonishing gonna... to realize that that number is starting at such a low point. Such a low point. And that's only because of the pandemic. Yeah. The pandemic is what got companies starting to offer backup care and subsidies, you know. But now we know that the reason why study after study after study, which shows is that the reason why women aren't coming back is because of childcare. It's too expensive. It's not affordable. And the number one thing that that employees want are companies to help them with their childcare. So, you know, take Amazon, for example. It's like you're increasing base salaries from 150 up to 350, but people are leaving within six, seven, eight months. You're out money. So the cost of attrition is actually higher than if you started offering subsidies for childcare. And if you start caring for my family, I'm going to stay with you. Yeah. So if they, if, if they just look at it from a bottom line perspective, it just makes all the sense in the world. I got about, I, I got a little bit less than two minutes here for actually a minute and a half. So I, I want to ask you this. You mentioned hopeful before. Are you hopeful that if, if we can embrace even some of what you talk about here in our book, we might be able to redefine the definition of successful for women. Very hopeful. Let me tell you why. When I started Girls Who Code, the places where I started were in refugee camps, poorest communities. And I said to myself, if I can teach a girl to code here, I can teach any girl to code. It's the same thing with workplaces. If we can make workplaces finally work for working moms, we make them work for everyone. When I talk to dads over the past two years, they got to walk their kids to school, mm -hmm. take them to soccer games, spend time with them, caretake, and they don't want to go back to that old nor normal either. I talk to young women who don't have children yet, and they look at us and they say, you know, the birth rate is at a 50-year all-time low. And they look at us and they say, no, thank you. And yep. I say to them, we, you got to fight for this too, because don't let them take your choice away from you. So I am hopeful because what we're fighting for and pay up right. is what we all want. Yep. Well, once again, the book is called, said, Pay Up, the Future of Women and Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. And I love your inspirational quote in the beginning where you say, for the next generation of women, so the marketplace of the future finally works for them. Rashma Sujani, it's a marvelous book. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. You be well. Thank you, Jack. You too. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, wliw.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.